The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. You would join me in your Bibles in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Since we're observing the Lord's Supper this afternoon, I'm not going to be doing an exposition of a text, but instead I wanted to give uh, a little bit of time answering a question that many of you, even today actually, have asked me about uh, our series looking through Galatians and how this relates to uh, those who call themselves Messianic Jews. Uh, So I want to try to answer a question in as succinct manner as possible, and hopefully it will help us not just in our own interactions with other people, but in our understanding as we move forward in our study of Galatians. So the question many of you have asked me is about whether or not the modern movement called Messianic Judaism is similar to the beliefs and practices of the Judaizers, the false teachers that had infiltrated the churches in Galatia. This is a very relevant question, especially living in South Florida. There are many Jewish people here, and among them are some who consider themselves Messianic Jews. That is a person who is Jewish, either ethnically or uh, has become Jewish through a process of uh, going through everything that would be required to become a Jew, uh, but they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, So they identify themselves as Jewish. And I suppose the broader question that's being asked behind the question is, in essence, are Messianic Jews a saved people? And I'll say up front, it's, it's not the easiest question to answer. It's taken a lot of time to dig out what I hope is some clear answers along the way, but hopefully we can add some clarity to our thinking and inform our understanding of what a person means when they tell you they are a Messianic Jew and what our response to that might be. So I want to begin by reading Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. And it's here that we have uh, Peter's description of his vision from heaven regarding unclean food and his response to those who were questioning his association with Gentile believers in Christ as a result of the vision. And this lays an important foundation for us as it's intimately tied to what we see later in Galatians and specifically when we see Peter himself having uh, to be confronted by Paul uh, because of an issue having to do with table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. So let's read together in Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. 
for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He would declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, as 21st century Christians living in the West, we have a somewhat difficult time conceptualizing the significance and the conundrums of the first century church with regard to one's identity when they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If a Jew believed that Jesus was the Messiah, does that mean that they're no longer Jewish? Or does it mean that they are a Jew who believes in Jesus? Or does it mean that they are now a Christian? If Gentiles believe the gospel, does that mean that they must first become Jews to really be a child of God? Or are they exempt from the Jewish rituals and traditions and customs and adherence to the Mosaic law? Were Jewish believers one people of God and Gentile believers another people of God? Or are they the same people of God? And if they're the same people of God, is there a distinction to be made between being ethnically Jewish or Gentile? Or are there distinctions, are those distinctions made null and void? If a Jew believes that Jesus is the Messiah, is there any binding necessity for them to continue to participate in Jewish life and rituals and traditions and customs or any aspect of the Mosaic law? Or are they free to live in a similar fashion to the Gentile believers? These are big questions. Many of these questions, uh, probably a lot of us haven't even really thought through or tried to work through because it's not as pressing on us as it would have been in first century culture as the church was being established. But we see these questions brought up all throughout what's going on in the New Testament and particularly in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, this passage in Acts 11 is one of those discussions as the circumcision party was criticizing Peter for eating with the newly converted Gentiles. Now, remember, to the Jews, the Gentiles, their practices and their food were all considered unclean because they did not adhere to the Mosaic law. So their conclusion was that Peter was compromising with regard to his covenant obligations as a Jewish man. I want to also point out something here that's important to understand. Notice in verse 2, references made to the circumcision party. 
there's an important distinction to be made here because there were actually two sects of the circumcision party. One sect, which seems to be those who were initially critical of Peter, were what has been referred to as Orthodox Hebraists. Those were Jewish converts who were carefully observant of Jewish tradition themselves, but they accepted Hellenist and and Gentile believers who were not Jewish, although they still maintained some level of separation because of their continued adherence to the Mosaic Covenant. The other sect of the circumcision party is the group we are all becoming more familiar with as we work through Galatians, and that is the Judaizers. And the reasons that's particularly notable here is because you'll notice again, the initial criticism that came to Peter was from the circumcision party, and it was that he was associating with uncircumcised men. However, once he provides an explanation of the vision from heaven, we read in verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And so based on their outright acceptance of what Peter said, it is reasonable and safe to conclude that these were most likely Orthodox Hebraists and not Judaizers that were confronting Peter. Because the Judaizers would have maintained an insistence that Gentile believers be circumcised and maintain the Mosaic regulations, as we will see as we get into Galatians chapter 2. So what is the point here? The point is that Peter is identifying what Paul identifies elsewhere, namely that with the coming of Christ, with the life of Christ in fulfilling the law of God, with the atoning death of Christ on the cross, with the resurrection of Christ, the new covenant era has been established and with the new covenant in place, it is as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, that Christ is now our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, this is something that the Orthodox Hebraist evidently accepted after speaking with Peter, and yet the Judaizers did not. The Judaizers continued to make a firm distinction between Jews and Gentiles as though the wall of hostility had actually remained. And if the Galatians wanted to walk in the true way of faith, according to the Judaizers, they would need to become Jewish first in every sense of the word, other than their ethnicity, of course, with the addendum that they also needed to believe in Christ. So with that being said, are today's Messianic Jews more alike the Orthodox Hebraists of the circumcision party that we read about in Acts 11, or are they more akin to the Judaizers of Galatians. If only the answer were that easy. (laughs) So I want to take a brief moment to describe the Messianic Jewish movement and highlight some key points. Now, obviously, I cannot do an exhaustive or even a comprehensive examination in the short time that we have. So I'm just going to point out a few important things. And since there's no doubt in my mind that 
anyone could listen to what I'm saying and pick at various details and point to isolated examples of where I'm and say I'm not being entirely accurate in my assessment, I will say that I'm responding in generalities. In general, what can we say about the broader messianic Judaism movement? There are undoubtedly differences in the way that things are talked about and thought about and understood in the same way that there are differences between Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians. I mean, Reformed Baptists have enough divisions of their own, let alone bringing in the Presbyterians. So we can still talk generally, though, about us all being Reformed Christians, and that's what we're, that's what we're doing there's a degree, uh, there are degrees of difference, but Jewish culture and religious tradition uh, on some level are being maintained along with an understanding of the divinity of Jesus, God as Trinity, and the authority of the New Testament. So, first thing, are Messianic Jews considered Jewish or Christian? Within Judaism, there are four major denominations in the world today. The differences are significant, but there is one thing at least that all four of them share in common. Namely, the belief that Messianic Jews are not acceptably Jewish and that Jewishness is utterly incompatible with belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ. There are several reasons for this, but the primary assertion behind the rejection of the Messianic Jews and uh, as as being Jewish is that is their belief in G- Jesus as the Messiah and their belief in God as Trinity. They believe it is a heretical rejection of a purely monotheistic God. One Jewish scholar wrote, a Jew can believe almost anything but Jesus as Lord. And in fact, you will find that there are there are Jews who call themselves Buddhist Jews, uh, and that is acceptable among some of the denominations, but to be a Messianic Jew is certainly not acceptable. Hence the monolithic denunciation of mono, uh, Messianic Judaism, even bringing a unity of agreement between Orthodox and liberal Jews on the matter. Now, interestingly, Messianic Jews will generally reject at the same time being called Christian So while many Messianic Jews have attempted to cultivate a positive relationship with evangelical Christians, they will insist that they are not Christians because Christianity is Gentile at best and a misreading and misunderstanding of the Bible's teaching with regard to what it means to be a follower of the Messiah at worst. One Messianic Jew said of his identity as a Jewish man in comparison to other Jews, the only thing different is that I read the New Testament and I believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Messiah. And so in Messianic Judaism, being a Jew is very much inseparable from one's status before God. They very much base their core identity before God on being under the law to include circumcision to include cultural, religious, and ethnic relations to historical Israel. In other words, Messianic Jews define their core identity as according to the flesh because they understand circumcision not merely as a cultural symbol, but as a sign of a covenant between God and his people, thus marking off Israel as God's people. 
So Messianic Jews conclude that the unity in Christ that Paul writes about, that I just quoted to you from Ephesians 2, that destroys the wall of hostility, is a unity, but it does not erase distinction between individuals. In other words, they believe that there are different roles for Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Gentiles are grafted in, but they are grafted into what they would call the commonwealth of Israel, and so they're not Jewish in any real sense. Messianic Jews believe in what they call bilateral ecclesiology. I know that's very plain to you. In other words, the idea that the church consists of two distinct parts, one made up of Jewish believers, the other made up of Gentile believers. Now, while we believe in one and the same Messiah, for the Jewish believers, they would say there's an absolute necessity to live according to the Torah, while the same requirements are not laid upon Gentiles. In other words, Messianic Jews generally insist on the necessity of a separate community that is distinct from Christianity, and they would tell you they are not Christians. They are Jews who believe in the Messiah. So do Messianic Jews believe that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? This is the heart of the question, isn't it? In general, Messianic Jews have a problem with the Protestant understanding of justification by faith alone. They believe, along with those who hold to what is called the new perspective on Paul, that the phrase justification by faith is mistranslated by biblical scholars. And they insist that we should understand Paul's intention is to communicate that one is justified through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, in one sense, we wouldn't disagree with that, right? Certainly, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is essential to our salvation because we need a Savior who was faithful to the end to fulfill the entirety of God's law to perfection. However, the general argument of the Messianic Jews is that the gospel is not really about personal salvation, but rather about covenant membership. It is a globally unifying faithfulness from Jesus that has no part in constituting a new relationship with God for the individual. So we're left to ask, how is that good news for me? They would respond by saying that when you become a believer in Yeshua, Jesus, they use Hebrew terms for most of what they talk about, you become a full-fledged covenant member. Okay, we would agree with that in terms of the new covenant, but they aren't referring to the new covenant. They're referring to the Torah. So they would contend that believing in Yeshua grants you membership into the Mosaic covenant, and as such, you now have a right and responsibility to fully participate in the Torah that God gave to Israel. So to be righteous is to live within the covenant and within the terms it lays down in the law. To be acquitted, to be forgiven, to be recognized as righteous is to be counted as one of God's own people who has proved faithful to the covenant. Hopefully you see the difference. We believe we are justified by faith alone. 
our union with Christ is based on a one-time declaration from God that we are justified, acquitted, forgiven, members of the new covenant, inheritors of everlasting life on the basis of our faith in Christ granted to us by God himself. The Messianic Jew in general believes in a final justification that is on the basis of one's faithfulness to the covenant. One Messianic Jewish rabbi writes, if one does not get circumcised, then they are not obeying the Messiah in this regard, and thus not obeying God, and thus have not made true repentance to the Torah, and all are called to repentance. In other words, they would say, no, circumcision is not necessary for salvation, but it is a sign of obedience, and your final justification will be based on your obedience. And if you're disobedient, it is evidence that you never truly believed. You see, it's, it's a matter of both and. You are saved apart from works of the law, and you must obediently submit to the works of the law if you want to be justified in the end. It reminds me of the Monty Python test to determine if a woman was a witch. Perhaps you're familiar. If you think she's a witch, you throw her in the water. And if she floats, she's a witch and must be burnt. If she sinks, she's not a witch, but she drowned. (laughs) There's no winning, right? So we can say that Messianic Judaism inevitably adds, ultimately we have to say, it adds religious and covenantal meaning to Christ's completed work and can be compared with with Paul's opponents in Galatia who wanted believers to perfect their status before God in the realm of the flesh. So what does this do? It defies the all-sufficiency of Christ and wars against the idea of Christ alone. So, Finally, our Messianic Jews, modern-day Judaizers. At the very least, I, I believe we are safe to say that there are many similarities between the false teaching of the Judaizers and much of what we see in the majority teaching of Messianic Judaism today. As with many different religious ideas that include belief in Jesus as a necessary element of true faith, Determining the exact conclusions regarding what is required for salvation is very difficult. And yet, with careful study and attention to the details of the language, a Christian can conclude that Paul would look at what Messianic Jews teach today and say it is, in most instances, another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Like the Judaizers of Paul's day, Messianic Jews maintain a strict belief that they are unique and distinct in their relationship with God over and apart from Gentile Christians. While in contrast, Paul argues that the wall of hostility is torn down in Christ, and as a result, there is now no distinction to be made between Jew and Gentile. When we place our faith and trust in Christ alone, we are one body of Christ and not two. Remember, we saw that very passage this morning in Galatians. There is neither male nor female. He also mentions there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that being said, I hope that gives us uh, 
a helpful answer to that question many of you have asked, but also aids us as we continue to walk through Galatians in the weeks ahead, as we think about the nuances. Many of these nuances are, are just the turn of a phrase or the way a word is used, the language is being utilized. And whether or not someone is trying to, uh, to intentionally be deceptive or if it's simply how the language is used is one thing. Uh, but if we're not careful, we can easily sort of accept all of these ideas that claim Christ as simply being Christian. Uh, but then all of a sudden you're uh, you're dealing with all sorts of heresies uh, that have all claimed Christianity throughout the history of the church. And so now as we turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, these distinctions, these very distinctions I've mentioned are vitally important. We come to the table not as a people who are seeking to be declared righteous on the basis of our obedience to the covenant, but rather as a people who have already been declared righteous on the basis of our faith in the all-sufficiency of Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, burial, and glorious resurrection. Our faith is not in the efficacy of a religious system, but in the embrace of all that Christ is and all that Christ has done on our behalf. Indeed, our faith is not even in our faith. Our faith is in Christ himself. And so we come to the table as a people who recognize above all else that we in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer up to God as a payment for the vile nature of our sin. We depend fully and completely on Christ alone. We trust, no, we trust no one else and we trust certainly not in ourselves or our obedience to commend ourselves to God. We depend on the whole Christ. And so today we remember what Christ did on our behalf that we can be certain that we have peace with God who gave his only son for us. It is the blessing we have as we come to the Lord's Supper. Amen. So we're going, to, we're going to sing in Christ alone, and during that we'll take our benevolence offering. And remember I mentioned this morning that all of the benevolence offering today will go to Dante Paz for the purchase of a vehicle in his work. And so we will remain seated for our song, but we're going to sing in Christ alone, and after that I'm going to... Uh, to, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we will, uh, we will receive uh, a new member, Matthew Wagner, today, and then we will receive the Lord's Supper today.
Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your people. We are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful, Lord, that we can turn to your word and we can see the teaching of your word that we truly are justified by faith alone. And that faith given to us as a gift from your hand. And it is our faith in Christ, the whole Christ, that we embrace and that we love and we are thankful for. And so as we come before you to receive the Lord's Supper today, we come together as a people who recognize what your word says. Who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid? We come not to give any gifts to you, O Lord. We come to receive from you what you have blessed us with that we might receive and be filled and be renewed and be strengthened yet again by our faith in the whole Christ. And so we pray, God, with thankful hearts for all that Christ is and all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And we pray that everything that we seek to do as we move along this afternoon is to your glory and for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.